The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. This morning's scripture reading comes from Luke 18, 1 through 14. Please stand in reverence for the reading and hearing of God's holy word. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning. I'm Chris Bowen. It's, I'm one of the pastors here, and it's good to be with you. I am um, really excited for this week. Uh, everything, at least how I've been framing it, is, is in relation to last year. It was different. Uh, this room was empty. And so the, the activities were streamed, and that was really tremendous. But this year, I'm looking forward to being with you guys. Um, my wife, a couple days ago, she was like, what did we do last year? We're just forgetting that. Um, but we're um, in, in this morning with it being Passover and, or Palm Sunday, uh, we, we're, we're looking at the Gospel of Luke. And we really worked. We, we wanted to try to just, just uh, craft this thing just right where we were landing in, in, in the passion narrative uh, of Jesus Part of the difficulty of that is in each of the Gospels, uh, those writers give, you know, a third to 40% of their, their whole Gospel to the last week of Jesus. Uh, so we couldn't do it in seven days. And so we're going to look at a, a different passage, uh, and we believe that that's important uh, because it's, it's from Jesus and what Jesus is trying to teach us about his kingdom and about who he is and what he's come to do. He's trying to teach us about the gospel, which is why we gather. At this church, we, 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 our vision is that we want to see lives transformed by the power of the gospel. My hope this morning is that you will, uh, either for the first time or for the hundredth time, encounter that power 
as we look at this text. My hope is that it would begin to stir you, uh, that you would celebrate Christ and that you would be renewed in your heart and mind, that you would be drawn together in community in your life groups and other places, and that you would be sent out uh, to, to model the love of Jesus to others in service. And so we're doing that because we believe that this is important. This week is our Super Bowl. Uh, that, that's what we gather. It's, it's an empty tomb. It's Christ dying for sinners on the cross. And so we, we turn our passage, our attention to these two parables. Uh, these two parables are unique to Luke's gospel. You won't find them anywhere else. You're probably familiar, if you've grown up in the church, with the, the second one, which is the tax collector and the Pharisee. You might be a little less familiar with the uh, judge and the persistent widow. But as we look at these passages, I want to start by reminding us of, of the, the value of a parable. Parables were teaching tools. Uh, rabbis would use them uh, with everyday uh, occurrences in life. And he would present them to, to communicate a particular message or a principle in often a way that was startling. It might have been surprising. And we find something surprising in both of these passages. It isn't what you would expect in, in terms of the norm or, or what they may seem. And Jesus is doing this because this is situated in a larger context of him talking about his kingdom. He, he's talking about his kingdom and what the, the values of it and the declaration of it and, and what it will look like. He, he's giving us these parables because he's also preparing because we're in the, the, the narrative of his life. We're getting closer to that Passion Week. And so he's preparing us to enter into that. And as we look at these, these two parables, what you initially would see is that they're framed through the subject of prayer. They're framed through the subject of prayer. Uh, we see two different prayers in the second one, and we see that we're called to pray in the first. But I think that that, that framework is actually trying to drive us to something deeper. It's driving us to a, a more significant question as it relates to the gospel. And that particular question, it revolves around a, a word grouping of justice or just or justification or justified. And, and it's wrapped around those. And in what you find when you, when you turn on the news or you consider your own life or even maybe on the playground is that justice is something that is innate within humanity. For example, I have three girls. Try to go up and give one of them a popsicle and not give the other two a popsicle. And guess what you're going to hear? That's not fair. From our earliest age, we have this sense of fairness. And this sense of justice is that we are do something. Or it is getting, giving someone what they are due. But over time, and, and as that has been manipulated within the greater culture, what that is meant is it's something that we're entitled to. We look around at our uh, world, we look at around at our world this past year, and there were a lot of issues of justice that came up. 
And what happened is often what was so difficult about these cries for justice or, 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 or fairness that was going on in our community is oftentimes there were two parties championing something in justice that were actually related but somehow seemed separate or dissonant. And so if you were just watching, you'd say, well, how, how do these fit? They, they both can't necessarily be right. And, and, and I think the reason why we've gotten there is over the last several decades, we've seen this increasing erosion of standards in our society. It started off with the rejection of truth. It, that came through the challenging of the way we know and the challenging of knowledge. We became skept, skeptical of knowledge. And the assumption that knowledge was being used by a certain group uh, for power in order to attain social control. So we became suspicious. And in this, that suspicion, we began to question a lot of different things. We, we don't see overarching narratives or frameworks or stories that apply to all lives. Instead, we've come in our Western context to a very individualistic mindset that says, what's true for me is true for me, and what's true for you is true for you. But don't put your truth on me. That's your truth. I have my truth. And so we walk around with these uh, ongoing um, dialogues with others of this idea of truth, but there's multiple truths for everybody. And so the problem with that, and the reason why I spend a little bit of time, is because that actually rubs up against the very notions of what is just. And it's root connotation, a very simple definition, is to make something or to declare something right, to make it vindicated. To, to make it right means there has to be a wrong. But what we don't want is to necessarily go into that space to where we would declare something is wrong. And so as we wrestle with this and we look at this, what, what I think is it's striking at a, a fundamental question that all of us ask, and it's in a fundamental desire that we have. We desire justice. We desire things to be made right. But we also desire to be justified, that we would be made right. And so as we look at this this morning, what I want us to see is three things. Why do we want it? Why we, how we miss it? And how we get it? So why do we want it? How do we miss it? And how do we get it? So first, let's start and look at why do we want it? We look at this first parable, and what it tells us is that Jesus, in this larger framework, this larger teaching block that he has, turns and he talks to his disciples. We know he's talking to the disciples because in uh, chapter 17, verse 22, that was the last referent that we're giving, and it just used the pronoun, which is actually referring back up to them. So he looks at his disciples, and this is one of those good parables because it tells us what it's about at the beginning. It, it says, And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He's telling them to pray and to not lose heart. And so he gives us a story. He says, In a certain town. It could be any town. It could be yours. It could be mine. It is, but a certain town. There was a judge. And this idea of the judge is he's the one who sits in this civil or this civil court and has authority and power. And he is the one who declares what is right. He makes these judicial rulings. It tells us 
that he neither fears God nor respects man. He neither fears God nor respects man. Now that's really, really important. Because this, in talking to a Jewish audience, they would have immediately assumed this was a Jewish court. So the idea that you have a judge who doesn't fear God, which was the highest commandment in Deuteronomy 6, to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that he doesn't respect man, which Jesus said in Luke 10 was the second commandment, that we would love our neighbor as ourself, what we're finding is this is someone who functionally is an atheist. He's functionally rejecting God. The judges in this day would to have been those who are trying to apply God's law to those situations that they encounter. What this man is saying is that he is a law unto himself. Or as the book of Judges would say it in the Old Testament, that he does what is right in his own eyes. And so here we have this judge in this court who does what is right in his own eyes and his highest end is his own self-interest and in comes a widow. Now a widow, in biblical understanding, pointed to someone who was the one of, if not the most vulnerable person in society. Her husband, her security had passed away And if she did not have a son to care for her, then she had no one who would advocate for her. She likely was not entitled to any resources or land or or financial assurance. She was on her own. A widow, when it is spoken of in the Bible, is often talking about affliction or desolation. Someone who does not have a champion. And so it tells us that this widow goes to this judge who neither respects man or fears God, and she says, give me justice. She says, give me justice against my adversary. She says, I need you to rule in a way that declares the situation right that makes a wrong a right, that, that, that gives me what I am due. Now, the, the whole point of this is, is to stir up compassion. It's setting up the judge as the antagonist and this widow as the protagonist, and we're supposed to be moved with compassion towards this widow. And what we find is a rather interesting response. It, it tells us that this judge for a while refuses. He won't have anything to do with this. And what some commentators write is that she didn't have any resources to offer a bribe to him. She didn't have anything to give that would satisfy his self-interest, and so he simply wasn't worried about it. He was going to allow the wrong or the adversary to continue to perpetuate this situation. And so this widow who doesn't have anything at her disposal, no no influence, no uh, resources, no power, all that she has is her persistence. And it tells us that she goes to him time and time again. And, And it says actually that this is a bother to the judge. 
But what's interesting when I was digging around in this is, is, is she says that he will finally give in. I will give her justice, verse 5, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. The language there says so that she will not give me a black eye. And when I read that, I had this, this scene of an old vaudeville play that was a little uh, satirical and a little comical. And it was this old widow going in and beating the judge over the head with her purse. That's the image that I kind of took away. And it's the image that he, he kind of gives us, that Jesus is, is trying to shock us. And in this, he's saying, here's this judge that in, uh, for fear of his own well-being, finally gives in and does what is right. And this parable, in kind of a manner of speaking, is a how much more than parable. So he turns to them and says, how much more? If an unrighteous judge can do what is right, will God, your Father, give justice to his elect? And that word there is to me, his, his people, his covenant people, those whom he loves. If an unrighteous judge who's only motivated by self-interest can do the right thing, how much more will your father, will your father do the right thing? And so the idea is he, he moves into this. And he says, and he's talking about the elect who cry day and night with their persistence. He says, will he delay long over them? It's talking about God's patience and his long suffering. But he hears your cry and he loves you. And it tells us that he will give them justice speedily. Now that word speedily isn't saying the moment you ask for it. It's saying that it will be decisive. It's talking about at the appointed time. God who knows the, the, the end from the beginning. He will not tarry, but he will do it at just the right moment. And when he does, it will, there will be nothing that is left undone. And so he's looking to his disciples as they're in the greater context of this kingdom uh, discourse. And he's saying, will you have faith? Do you believe that God will make what is wrong in the world right? Do you believe that he will come in and bring justice to the oppressed? Do you believe that he will uh, be an advocate for the vulnerable? Will he hear your prayer and act? This is, he's saying, have faith for the Lord will do it. You see, all of us want justice. We have this sense that something is wrong in this world. It is not the way it's supposed to be. It doesn't matter which side of the spectrum you fall on. We're all trying to make things right. But so often what we're doing is through the lens of our own self-interest. And so we just want it to be right the way that we think it's right. And that is at the root of a lot of our frustration. And so we all want justice. We all want to be justified. We all want the rightness. But so often we, we miss it. And that's what he gives us in this second parable is how we miss it. He, he turns from the disciples who he's been talking to. And it turns over and it tells us that the second parable is to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous 
and treated others with contempt. You remember that judge who didn't fear God and didn't respect man? It's kind of like what it's saying there. That these people trust in themselves and they have a disdain for others. So Jesus is turning to those in his audience and he gives them this parable. He doesn't locate it in a, a, just an arbitrary town. He says, no, there are two men that went up to the temple. And going up to the temple would have meant something very specific. Every good Jewish boy or girl, man or woman, had a certain idea of what it meant to go to the temple. They had sung the songs. They had made the pilgrimage. They had celebrated the Passover. They knew what this was. And I think that's one of the things that's lost on us. And so what you'll find over the course of, of reading the narrative uh, in the next week is that there's a, ver- a variety of courts. There's the court of the Gentiles, which everyone could go in. And then there was a court for the women, and then there was an outer court, and then there was an inner court. And you fir- got further and further in until you actually got to the temple itself. And it was there that they were making these sacrifices. The temple in, in, in Jewish culture was the, this, this understanding of that was the place where God dwelt. The presence of the Lord dwelt in the temple. And so it was tremendous in the understanding of Israel and their worship of God to make it to the temple. And so what people would often do is what we find them doing in this parable is that they would go to this holy site and they would pray. And as they would gather in that place, I want you to kind of think about this because none of us have ever experienced the way these individuals had been experienced. As you would hear all the, the bustle and activity of the worship of the Levitical priesthood. And you would smell the, the smells of incense coming off the altar of incense. But as you got closer and closer up to the temple, one of the things that they had was the, the bronze altar. And by some estimates, this was about 15 feet tall. It was about 30 feet wide. And this bronze altar had a fire going in it, day and night. Every moment of the day, it was not supposed to go out. It was a fire that was lit by the Lord himself. And twice a day, an animal sacrifice was was offered up and, and the, the, the animal sacrifice was then taken over and was burnt. And so, so the smell in the temple was very distinct. And so these two men go into the temple. The first one, it tells us, is the Pharisee. The the Pharisee literally means the separated ones. The separated ones. These were men who were zealous in adhering to God's law. They were zealous in how they were obedient to God's law. They, they, they were so obedient in, in attempts to be ritually pure that they would distance themselves from anyone or anything that might bring about a defilement to them. In many ways, these were the, the model citizens of this particular culture. They would fit right in with our church. These would be the upright person of moral standing in our community. These would be the parents that you wanted your children to play with. The the Pharisees 
were one of those folks that was really a, a bit of a conundrum. Because what we see in, in, in Scripture is that Pharisee actually becomes very synonymous with hypocrite. And, and what we find in, through that hypocritical word is this idea of pretending. And so what we find is that we're, they're trying to pretend to be something that they're not. So this Pharisee in this parable, he comes to the, to the most prominent place to pray. And he's standing up and arms outstretched. The text doesn't necessarily tell us that, but that's kind of the idea you get when you look at it. And he starts off in the negative. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He walks in the middle of the room and starts pointing around at everyone else gathered and say, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like them. He immediately goes to a comparison. He's trying to show that he is right by how much more right he is than everyone else. He addresses their wrongs. What he's trying to do is to show his own righteousness. He's trying to demonstrate that he is just. Now, it's real easy to look at these passages, especially with some of the Pharisees and the Sadducees throughout the Gospels, and think, oh, look at those guys. See, the reality is we do those things too. Let me give you an example. I have theological righteousness. I see certain people read certain books or posting certain authors or, or, or what have you, and I go, oh, if you only read a little bit more, if you only believe the doctrines of grace, if you only had this theological framework, well, then you, then you would have a better understanding. I, I am a repenting theological Pharisee, and I am growing out of it, but I got a long way to go. But, but maybe that's not yours. You might look and, and say, well, of course that's yours. You're the pastor. Okay, well, fair. Some of us have political righteousness. You get on your social media and, and you look at all the various things that you have posted. Now, if we're going into that idea of a Pharisee, what it means is we're a separated one. And Charles Murray, in his book Coming Apart, talked about how white America is increasingly becoming either more blue or more red. And we're distancing ourselves from the other parties where we're not actually having dialogue. It's just a one-way shouting match. And if you get on Instagram and Facebook and all these other places, that's exactly what it looks like. And so we've simply demonstrated our own rightness in the political arena by how we have distanced ourselves from the other party that we don't agree with. The way we talk about who's appointed or, or who was uh, uh, nominated or who received the vote for the appointment. You see, we have, some of us have a political righteousness. It may not be that you have a political righteousness. You might just have a food righteousness. You say, well, I can't believe you eat fast food. You know, fast food's horrible. You should never eat it. You should eat clean and organic food. You should shop here or there. But Chick-fil-A, Chick-fil-A's all right. But, but don't eat McDonald's because if you mean, oh, well, then you're anathema. And we all have this kind of sliding scale of what we can and can't eat. And sometimes, especially amongst parents, we, we particularly judge and show our righteousness when we see what food parents are feeding their children. 
If it's not that, it could be a school righteousness. I send my kids to public school. I send my kids to private school. I send my kids to a private Christian school. I send my kids to a private covenantal Christian school. I send my kids to a private covenantal homeschool. And what you find is people start assessing one another and who they can associate by based on where their kids go. We have a school righteousness. If you don't have school righteousness or theological or political righteousness or even food righteousness, you probably have traffic righteousness. <laughs> Yesterday, we were driving onto the island. I've lived here two years. I am not a local by any stretch other than the fact that I live here now. And what did I do? I started judging all those cars from out of state that were preventing me from getting to my appointment on the island at 4.30. And we start judging all these people. You know, everyone else that's driving slower or faster than you is a maniac. But you can be blowing right by or slow, being the slow lane, uh, slow lane, and you think, what's wrong with all these other people? We have a traffic righteousness. And just for good measure, what I've really found in the last year or so is that we actually have a mask righteousness. You go into a certain establishment, posted all over the windows when you go in, it says, must wear mask. And then you're walking down the aisle of Kroger and you see someone come by and they don't have a mask on. And you go, <gasps> and you look at them, judge them. Fiend, how can you not wear a mask? I'm just trying to love my neighbor. I'm trying to be obedient. I'm trying to have my right Kroger mask wearing righteousness. And you look at everyone else or secretly you're saying, you know, I just wish I had the courage that they had not to wear the mask in here. But I don't want to be judged by everyone else, and so I'm going to walk around in my mask and hate it the whole time. You see, this is what it is revealing about our hearts. It's the problem with our own, trusting in our own righteousness. Is that when we trust in our own righteousness, we're just trying to be a little better than the next guy. We're not measuring ourselves on God's standards. No, we've removed him out of the equation. We're just trying to be better than you and you and you and you. And we all have a hierarchy in our mind. I'm not as good as Mother Teresa or Billy Graham, but I'm better off than that guy. And just as long as I'm better off than that guy, then maybe the Lord will give me my due and let me in. You see, that's exactly what this guy does. He looks at the tax collector who's come to the temple to pray as well, and he says, thank the Lord I'm not like him. And, and if you have that attitude, that's how you miss the gospel. That's how you miss the work, God's work of redemption. That's how you miss his mercy and your grace because you're so focused on yourself, you don't see what he's doing. So Jesus is giving them this parable because he's trying to get their attention. And getting their attention, he, he has the second character in this story is one of the most uh, vilified people of this day. This particular tax collector would have been a Jewish man who had aligned himself with the Roman government. He made all of his money through extorting taxes from his fellow Israelite. And he would do it at great cost. 
this individual in pursuing this particular profession would have been a social pariah. No one would have wanted to be associated with him. This person walking into church this morning would not have been welcome. Perhaps some of you in your own struggles for righteousness would have seen them and say, you're not welcome here. We know you're kind. Now, you might not have said that to them, but from about here to here, you certainly would have communicated it. And so what we find is this tax collector goes in and he offers a prayer. He's standing far off. He, he, he knows he's an outcast. He knows he's broken. He knows that he's a sinner. And he's standing off to the side as the Pharisee glares at him. And he's got his head hung down in shame. And he's beating his chest. And, and our translations say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's a very good translation. But what it literally says is this. God, make atonement for me, for I am the sinner. He says, God, make atonement for me, for I am the sinner. In Greek, there is no indefinite article. There is no a or an. It's always implied in the translation. In this particular passage, it has the definite article. He is looking to the Lord in prayer, though he can't even look up, and he is saying, I am the worst of the worst, and Lord, you don't need to tell me about it. And he is saying, I need you to, not, not just to give me mercy, to make atonement for me. Atonement is this, is this word that, that we've combined that actually meant at one meant. And it talks about two parties that, that are divided. That they are essentially hostile towards one another. And in order to bring them back together, reconciliation has to be made in order for them to be restored. And most usually that restoration would, have been a, would come at the expense of the one who had been offended. That person had to say, that thing that you did to me, I will forgive. I will cover over. I will look past. And I will no longer count against you. You see, we don't really want justice. Because we don't want what we deserve. What we want is mercy. What we need is grace. And this is what this tax collector understood. And Jesus looks at the men that are there and, and, and he says, And this man went home justified. This man went home having been declared right. You see, the reason I mentioned that bronze altar is because those sacrifices that were being made and this smoke that would have been filling the air and the, the smells were the smells of, of the atoning sacrifices that were being made by the Levitical priesthood for God's people for the forgiveness of sins. And this particular word that, that we translate be merciful to me is used one other place in the New Testament. 
And that's in Hebrews 2, 17, which tells us, Therefore Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. And that translation, merciful, is not the one I'm talking about. It's this next phrase. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. You see, Jesus had to be made a high priest like you and I, to take on flesh. And and he, he makes the sacrifice, but he is the sacrifice. And he comes in in that word propitiation. It talks about covering over something in order to avert or satisfy God's wrath. You see, this tax collector is sitting there and saying, I don't want justice but I need you to justify me. And he's saying, I don't know how that's going to happen any other way than your work of atonement on my behalf. And what we find as we understand and continue to read the Gospels is that the good news of the Gospel is that it doesn't tell us how to get right with God. It tells us how God has made us right in Jesus. And that through Jesus' death on the cross, he took on himself our sin. The, the, The full wrath of God was poured out on Christ. And in him absorbing that, he who knew no sin became sin. So that we might become the righteousness of God. And he covers over us with his righteousness. You see, this is what Jesus is trying to drive his disciples and the Pharisees to understand. That you can't trust in what you are doing or what you're, how you're trying to make yourself right. And, and when you're doing that, all you're doing is at the expense of your neighbor. No, you need to look to the Lord. And he may be long-suffering. But when he acts, he will act decisively. And Hebrews 10 tells us that Christ, when he died on the cross, it was a once-for-all sacrifice. That's why this notion of of rebuilding the temple and and reinstituting the sacrificial system is actually an offense to the cross. For Christ's blood has offered us forgiveness of sins. And all who believe in him and, and receive his grace and the gift of faith and look to him in repentance and faith and obedience, they are made right. They receive justice. The cross is the place where God's justice meets God's mercy. And it is poured out on Jesus. So friends, we go into this week. And we go into this week needing to repent of our own attempts at righteousness. It might be as simple and benign as mask righteousness in a Kroger aisle. It could be something more insidious. But as in that idea of the way our culture has gone, where we've rejected norms and truths, what we've also rejected is the idea of sin. And sin is what separates us from God. And sin is our most fundamental problem. And it is in that that God is reconciling sinners to himself through the work of his son, which is why we gather. That is the power of the gospel, and that's why we celebrate this week.
So we continue to invite you in this journey. For Maundy Thursday, Jesus' final meal, the establishment of the new covenant, the Good Friday when he hung on the cross and breathed his last and said, it is finished. And then Sunday when the tomb is empty and Christ has been vindicated and he has risen from the dead. That is what justifies us. Let's pray. Our great God and King, we thank you that you have not given us what we deserve. Lord, we, we are in awe that you would not spare your own son. Lord, but you, through his death, would make us right and adopt us as sons and daughters into your kingdom. So Lord, help us not to lose heart and help us to not lose faith to trust in you, Lord, not to trust our own selves. Lord, we would see what Christ has done. Lord, that he is a friend of sinners. And Lord, that we would magnify and glorify your name. Lord, continue to work that out into our lives, Lord, for we so easily forget it. Lord, help us to see Jesus, see him more beautiful and more believable and to know what it means to be made right through the work of the cross. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.